Almost everyone wants to be saved by Jesus, but not everyone wants to actually follow him. Almost everyone wants to be saved by Jesus, but not everyone wants to follow him. Last week we looked at the household of God, that the church is predominantly his family. How did you go at thinking that one through? What changes did you make? Did you think about it at all? See, the preeminent family in the world is God's family. Family idolatry happens when natural families make their natural family the preeminent family. I think the most healthy, we've just been talking about it uh, a little bit in the last week, the most healthy natural family is one that is plugged well into the preeminent family, into God's family. So if you're a family, if you're part of God's family, if as Ephesians 2 said last week, you're his household, uh, what did you change this week to reflect that? There's something really unique about God's family. We're going to see that today. So I'd love it if you grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can sneak up the back and grab one. Uh, that's cool. Um, just go to Ephesians 2. If you're not used to the Bible, the, the Bible works like any other book. You've got a contents in the front. You can work out your page numbers, the big numbers of the chapters and the small numbers of the verses. So if you can duck across to Ephesians chapter 2, that would be great. I'm going to start at verse 19. Let's give you a couple of minutes for those who've just got a, uh, a Bible up the back. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Someone give me a cheer. All right? It's good news, right? You're a... You're a Gentile, you're not a Jew, which is all of us as far as I know. Uh, you're a Gentile, not a Jew, you're a long way off. You're a stranger, you're an alien to the good things of God. And that's different now because of what Jesus did. And that's something to cheer about. So I'm glad, I could, glad you could squeak one out. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, let's kick in. Today we're going to do three things. We're going to look at God's presence and history, God's presence in the church, and God's presence in you. Here we go. God's presence and history. Have a look at verse 19 to 20 there. I'm going to give you a really quick kind of Cook's tour of God's presence in history. All right? The early church was actually built upon the foundation of Jesus and the work that the apostles did. That's what we see in verse 19 and 20. We can see here that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now there's some confusion about whether this is a foundational cornerstone or a keystone. It doesn't really matter. The point is, he's the critical piece. All right? And the building's not in a good shape without Jesus kind of being in there. This is uh, from a basilica in 5th century Philippi. Uh, Jesus is a critical piece of what? Well, it's clear here, isn't it, in, in Ephesians 2, that he's the critical piece of a holy temple. There's a new temple. That's what Paul's actually talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 here. And you might ask, well, why do we need a new temple? And I'll tell you the reason. The reason is for the same reason that we needed an old temple. All right? It's about the presence of God. The temple was always about... How is God actually going to dwell with his people? How is he going to stay connected to his people? So let me rip through really quickly a quick kind of biblical theological survey. All right? Because you've got to get this idea that the temple thing has run the whole way through human history. In fact, there's some people that suggest that the Garden of Eden was a kind of temple. And actually, when you get to Revelation, I'm not even going to go into this today, but when you get to Revelation, in Revelation 21, I think it says, there isn't a temple in heaven. Why? Because God is the temple of his people in heaven, right? So you've got this theme of temple that runs the whole way through human history. 
Here's a big idea about temples. God doesn't dwell in temples. That would make him crazy small. <laughs> and it's not good news to have a crazy small God. Anyone with me on that? It's just not good news. In fact, the whole universe cannot contain him. So how is this massive, righteous, holy, perfect God actually going to be connected and dwell with his people? Well, it was through the temple. The temple was a gift from God. It was the way that God would dwell with his people. Listen to this out of Leviticus 26. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. You know, there's a sense in which uh, Jewish eschatology, they could get away with not having a strong belief in the Messiah or the, uh, a strong hope in the Messiah. But if you read the Old Testament, they never could get away with the thought that God wasn't present amongst them. I could just freak them out. All right. And you actually see that. So if we go all the way back before the temple was a tabernacle and the tabernacle probably looks something like that. But you know, before the tabernacle, there was a tent. You know this one? This is the one that Moses would meet him with God. It was called the tent of meeting. Do you know the tabernacle was meant to be actually set up in the middle of a camp because it actually symbolized the fact that God's presence was dwelling with his people. But the people, before we got to the tabernacle, the people rebelled. They worshipped a golden calf. And in Exodus 33, God said, I'm done with you. I'll stay with you, Moses, but I'm not going to stay with these people. And so Moses had this tent of meeting. And if you read the, uh, the, the descriptions about it in uh, Exodus, I think it is, Moses set this tent up away from the camp. You see that? It was, it was like away. It was like kind of separate a little bit. But you've got to get this idea for Israelites, the thing that was their identifier, the thing that gave them identity was the fact that Yahweh was with them. He was a God that was with his people. And you can see that throughout the Old Testament. It was like, we, God, we need you to be with us to be who we are. And I, I might just pause for a moment and just ask whether you feel like that. Is God's presence that critical to you? Is it that central and critical to who you are as a person? Is it, is it like the Israelites? So they set up and God gave instructions in Exodus about the setting up of the tabernacle. And then we see Solomon builds a temple and the temple uh, becomes this beautiful a uh, place in Jerusalem where annual pilgrimages to the temple would happen. And it was like great joy. It's like that was the place symbolically and actually and in actuality where God's presence actually dwelt in that place. And it's like you might have lived 100 k's away, right? But there's a few festivals a year where you just go, we're going to where God hangs out. And that's why people would get so excited about that. That's why they'd get so joyful about it. Because they were going to the place where God is. And you have things in the Psalms, like verses in the Psalms, like Psalm 84.10, where it says a single day spent in the sanctuary is better than a thousand elsewhere. You've got this expectation. It's like people are going and they're going, we're going to where God hangs out. And you can understand the distress and the loss felt by the people of Israel as a result of the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C. That meant nothing less than God's presence was gone from amongst them. And then you have a whole bunch of Jews that actually get exiled across to Babylon. You know, and it's like we're dislocated now. The, the, the person who gives us our identity in the temple, that's been trashed and now our identity is actually dislocated. But yet God promised to uh, Israel that even in their exile, he would be a sanctuary for them. And they discovered that his presence could be experienced in more places than they had thought. And then we get down to uh, uh, the time of Jesus and we've got Herod's temple. And we see in Mark particularly, for those who are around in the project, Jesus goes to war at, at some level with Herod's temple. You remember the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. You remember the, the fig tree the unfruitful fig tree, which was symbolic of what the temple had been. And then this moment in John 2, verse 18 to 22. Can you just look that up really quick? John 2, 18 to 22. 
where this whole temple thing starts to shift and change. John 2, verse 18 to 22. And this is what Jesus got Jesus, one of the things that got Jesus killed. So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, Herod's temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Do you know what's shifting here is Jesus is actually saying, look, the actual physical temple is not the connecting place between God and humanity. It's actually me. It's actually my body. And when I die, um, that's actually what's happening. And that's why you get in Mark 15, verse 38, you've got the temple, the, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. Why? Because that's not the connecting place for humanity anymore. The temple shifted from being a physical structure to being Jesus himself. Jesus swallowed the significance of the physical temple. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20, and we find the actual idea of the temple expanding even further. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. All of a sudden, Paul's now saying, look out, the temple is not just Jesus' body, but it's actually you individually. You, you actually house the presence of God inside of you. Do you believe that? You house the presence of God and you take it wherever you go. And it's not just you individually. Listen to this. You go to 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 to 17 because the local church is God's temple. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth. He's going, you guys get together and what's actually happening when you get together is you guys, in a sense, and this kind of language gets abused sometimes, right? But you actually are the present, the, the, you're hosting the presence of God by being together. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. Can you flick back over there? Go back and have a look at verse 21. And 22, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's the thing. You know what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2 is that the whole church across the whole of this globe is a temple for God's presence. And it's a temple that's actually growing. All right, you see that there? Uh, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. It's growing in holiness, it's growing in maturity, and it's growing in size. So if someone asks the question, how do I get access to the presence of God? Well, you could give them a whole bunch of answers, couldn't you? You say you do it through Christ. And then God comes and lives in you in, by the Holy Spirit. But then how do I actually lay hold of more of the presence and the sense of who God is? Well, I go to church. And I'm not talking about going to a church service, although I think that's part of it. I become part of God's family and I embed myself in that because that's who I am and that's where God's actually revealed. Now, let me ask you this question. Just dial back just a little bit for me. Just think for a moment, those of you who know your Bibles a little bit, what is the kind of stuff that used to happen in the temple? I mean, there's sacrifices, there was all that sort of stuff that, that would happen, all right? Yeah. Yeah, there's priestly duties, all right? There's priestly duties there. Do you know, do you know one of the things that happens in the temple... The temple is actually the place where the glory of God breaks out. Like you think about that through 
biblical history and that's what happens the glory of God at different times just kind of breaks out in the temple now just pull up for a minute and just kind of think about that and just go whoa hold on like if the scriptures are now saying that the church gathered is the temple all of a sudden we're just going whoa is that true is does the glory of God like God's greatness on display actually happen in the in the in the church Let me give you a few scriptures on this glory of God breaking out. 2 Chronicles 5 verse 13 to 14. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Like that, the temple is the place where God's glory comes out. That's what it is. That, I mean, it comes out in lots of other places. No question, but it is the place where God's glory comes out. Listen to this from Isaiah 6. In fact, you should look this one up. Isaiah 6. Just a few uh, books here after, uh, after Psalms. Isaiah 6. Look, look at this vision that uh, Isaiah has of the temple in the year that king Uzziah died verse 1 I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke And I said, woe to me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The glory of God breaks out randomly to us, but planned to him in the temple. Let me uh, just pull up just for a couple of moments and ask you a couple of questions, a couple of questions for you to meditate on. How much do you value the presence of God? You always have it with you if you love Jesus. But do you take it for granted that you don't have to travel for miles each year at different festivals to be near God? Second question, are you for all intents and purposes a lone ranger? Are you a lone ranger Christian? You are in a family if you love Jesus and you're in a family where the presence of God is. That is why you need to be part of church. Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. The church is going to get it done. And you need to be part of it. You can't get an understanding of God and his power in the sense of how it's expressed in the church by watching Hillsong TV. You can't get it. You can't get a sense of who God is or the presence and the power of God by listening to a podcast on your ride on mower. That comes by being part of God's family and getting together with his people. That's what kind of Paul's saying here. He's saying when God's people are together, when we think about God's people across the whole globe, that is a temple of God. God's household is where his presence and his power get expressed. It's where it can and does break out. It's God's presence in history, God's presence in the church. Come back to Ephesians 2. I want to push in, just, just be looking there at Ephesians 19, sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22. See, Paul's talking about the church. We've just dealt with history, the history of the temple. He's, he's talking about the church. Listen to what John Stott says about Ephesians 2. The church is a dwelling place of God in the spirit. 
It is his new society, his redeemed people scattered throughout the inhabited world. Listen to this. They are his home on earth. The church is God's home. They will also be his home in heaven. For the building is not yet complete. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Only after the creation of the new heaven and the new earth will the voice from the throne declare with emphatic finality, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. Isn't that beautiful? See, the church is where God's presence is. When you're in church, you get to know who God is. You get to know his glory. You get to know him better in church. Some of you might be sitting there and just going, well, how does it work? How does that work? How do you get to know God better by being in the community of the church? Well, I, uh, as a theologian, I really enjoy reading called John Frame. And he's heavy and he writes long books. And I was in Kurong the other day and there were two books called The Shorter Writings of John Frame. And I'm just going, I'm in for that. So uh, I bought those books. Um, and I was reading one of them uh, the other day. And uh, he was talking about God's knowledge and the limitations on our knowledge. So let me just throw this your way as, uh, as a way of helping you to understand how you access more of understanding about God and how you access more of God's presence by being part of the church. The term for God's knowing absolutely everything is omniscience. Now, just stop for a minute and think about that. God doesn't just know all the facts about himself and the world but he actually knows how everything appears from every possible perspective. Just think about that for a minute. So I'm sitting writing my sermon for today, and if there's a fly on the wall, God knows the perspective of the fly about what I'm doing writing my sermon. Does that make sense? And God knows, actually, if you got 25 people in my office, which would be weird because it's not that big, but... If you've got 25 people in my office, he would actually know what my laptop screen looks like at every single angle of everyone in the office. Now think about that when it comes to just stuff that happens during the day. Think about that with regard to the conflicts that you have and the things that don't always go right. And you just go, well, you need to think about it from my perspective. You know what? God's always thinking about it from every perspective. He always knows that all of the time. You see, God doesn't just know actualities, he also knows hypotheticals. And John Frame actually says that God's knowledge is not only omniscient, but omniperspectival. All right? Which is a term just saying he knows every single possible perspective on everything. We are finite and have limited knowledge. All right? Now, Nathan was up here before talking about connecting with people overseas, you know, one of the ways you actually increase your knowledge of things is you talk to people outside of your own context. You go to another country. You talk to someone who disagrees with you. You see, even, even when you... I mean, if I said to you, can you go out the back and can you just give me a good understanding of the tree out the back? What would you do? Well, you'd have a limited understanding if you stood in one place and looked at the tree from one angle. Wouldn't you? I mean, at the very least, you'd walk around the tree and look at all the different perspectives, you know? And it's a bit like that when it comes to us understanding things. It's like, if you think that your idea is the right idea, you're probably a fool. If you don't ever talk to other people, you're probably a fool if you just think you're right about stuff. Because the enriching of your knowledge actually comes from engaging with other perspectives. Even people who come up to you who have got ridiculous ideas. Has anyone ever talked to someone who's got just a dumb idea? And it's just like, are you serious? Like, are you sleepwalking right now? Or what is, really? You think that's a great idea? Well, you know, even those kind of conversations actually help us to broaden our understanding of something because they push us into places that we're not necessarily comfortable with. Now, I'm not saying that you can't know truth because God speaks to us in the Bible and makes things really clear. But to get knowledge well beyond our own individual knowledge, we actually need to be exposed to other perspectives. All right? And this is the dead set land that I've been living in with my study. All right? My, my supervisors just tell me, well, you've got to go and read all these people that disagree with you. You just go, okay. And it's actually really good. It clarifies things that I'm pretty sure about from the Bible and it challenges things that 
I thought I was clear about and then I thought, well, maybe that isn't true. I uh, got talking with a friend of mine a little while ago about social media and, uh, and he was new to it. And, to be truthful, he was a bit of a recluse. And what I mean by that is he actually didn't engage that much with people. He didn't have many relationships with people. And I remember standing there, hearing this guy who had just started engaging with social media talk about it, and he hadn't talked about it to too many other people, and I'm just going, this is wacky. Like, what you actually think is really, really wacky right now. And his ideas were wacky, not so much because they were so bad, but they just needed refinement. He actually needed to bounce off some other people, and I was kind of trying to help him with that, uh, just kind of throwing some things, you know, do you think you should think about this, you know? They needed refinement. His take was green, to say the least. If he engaged with other people more personally, his knowledge would have been more broad and considered. Now, let me ask you this question. How much more so is this true with regard to the knowledge of God? I don't give a rip what you think about God if you never ever talk about that kind of stuff with anyone. Now, it might be right. Some of it might be right. But you know what? There's probably a whole bunch of it that's just messy. I mean, there's too many Christians in the world. Does anyone know this is true? There's too many Christians in the world that have got narrow tunnel vision and they don't talk to people about other stuff and they just think they're right. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? So we just need to cut that crap, all right? Let's stop doing that. And this is kind of where I started this morning at the start of the day. So I, let's not be the people that draw lines about what we think is acceptable about how Jesus is going to lead us. Let's let him draw the lines. And if he says, get in his family because you get to know me better and you'll see my glory being poured out, let's get in his family and let's do that. Like, let's, let's not, and this is what I do too. It's like, yeah, Jesus, I want to do whatever you want to do in my life as long as it fits in these parameters. He's just going, no, I don't, I'm not interested in your parameters. C.S. Lewis was part of a famous circle of friends called the Inklings, which included Tolkien and another author, uh, Charles William. This is what uh, Lewis said about his uh, group of friends after Charles Williams died unexpectedly. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing him or her, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an older author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. We need each other to understand God. We need each other to see, to access at some level, an expression of God's presence. You see, Lewis is saying here that it took a whole community to know an individual. How much would this be true of Jesus Christ? It's going to take the whole church to know, to know God. And I'm not talking just about the project. I'm talking about the whole church across the globe. Because you know what? The project has got parameters in it that we probably don't even notice, that other churches don't have, that aren't necessarily God's parameters, and another church is pushing in that direction. Another church can actually help us to see more about who God is. See, I don't have time to go into this, but a major problem that I see with humanity is humanity has a way of finding a significant part and then making it the whole. That's what we do. 
And I suspect some of that has gone into the development of denominations. They find something that's really important and then they go, everything's about this. Let me give you a couple of quick examples. Like the whole, I'm, I'm doing this uh, at the moment. Um, we're doing a discipleship training thing on Sunday nights. Um, that's part of my study. You see, the self-esteem movement noticed something that was going on in humanity. And, it all, and I think they noticed something genuine that was kind of going on there, right? But the problem, the major problem with it is they took that tiny little thing that was going on that they noticed and said, it's all about this. You see, I think that kind of thing is happening with denominations. People break away from established churches because they're deemed to have missed something. It's like the church missed something. So what we're going to do is we're going to take something that only should be a part and make it a whole. And we'll call ourselves a new church. And here's the bottom line. You know this. The project can't be everything in one church. Okay? That's Ephesians 2. That's something God said, right? Because the only way that you get everything is in God's complete family. So we need other churches to be balanced. So you may not know it, but I, I meet less than I'd like to, but I meet and pray with Highfields Church pastors. I go to CLN. I was there last Thursday, praying with CLN and, and worshipping with them. A part of my, my study that I'm doing at the moment requires me to engage with people of, of other kind of persuasions in terms of some of the key things and key directions that we feel God's calling us to. I catch up with other pastors and meet with them. Why? Because we can't be self-contained and have everything that God wants us to be. It's meant to be the whole church. Let me finish with point number three. God's presence and you. Can you come across to Acts? Chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's just read verse uh, 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's just finish there. Do you see what's happening here? Is that God is actually breathing on his people and he's creating the holy community. The wind of God breathes upon them. And when you look there, it's like fire is on top of their heads. What's the significance of fire? Well, if you actually go back through biblical history, fire symbolizes the presence of God. Listen to what Eugene Peterson, I'm just going to read a, quite a long quote. It'll be on the screen there, but uh, read through it with me because uh, I think it's really useful. Those gathered in the room that day were part of a tradition in which fire, commonly altar fire, was associated with the presence of God. Abraham at Moriah... Aaron in the tabernacle, Elijah on Carmel. But there was more to it here. This fire was distributed. Each person individually was signed with a tongue of fire. Each person an altar, visibly on fire with the presence of God. As the breathing of the Genesis creation and the Jesus baptism swelled into a wind, the old altar fires were multiplied into personalised fires burning above each waiting man and woman, each of them now a sign of God alive, God present. It's just precious stuff. And then, repeating the pattern of Genesis and Jesus, the breath, wind, that is the living presence of God that filled each of them, was formed into spoken words by each of them. The tongues of fire became articulate in tongues of speech. The God-breathing that was formed into speech came out of the mouths of men and women speaking in all the languages, 16 and named, Represented in Jerusalem that day with all the languages expressing essentially the same thing, God's deeds of power. Everyone, of course, was properly astonished. The miracle of language is what first caught their attention. The God-originated and God-witnessing speech spoken in 16 different languages by ordinary men and women, Galileans, that is provincials who presumably would know only one or two languages. 
The confusion of languages at Babel was reversed. The continuing miracle that continues to astonish is that the same breath or life of God that created heavens and earth, that validated and blessed Jesus is now being breathed into ordinary men and women and formed into words that continue to give witness to God's Genesis creation and Jesus' salvation. The divine presence, if you belong to Jesus, the divine presence lives in you. Yeah. Isn't that good? You take it with you. Everywhere you go, you take it with you. So where I want to finish here is I want to tell you some stories. Okay? And and then we're going to have communion. So uh, just heads up, we're probably just going to go a few minutes over. All right? But let me tell you some stories. Last week, we baptised a girl called Gabby. All right? Now, her dad came to church last week. Doesn't have anything to do with church. And that was great. We got to have a good chat with him. A bunch of people chatted with him. You know what's most exciting to me about that family? Gabby's the first Christian in the family. Like, just pull up and just think about that in terms of the presence of God in that family. Now... There's someone who's walking around with the presence of God in that family. Is it like you get excited about that? So come on. I mean, we've got a family in this church where one of the children got saved first and then the presence of God came to other members of the family. Is that right, Lynn? I mean, how good is that? That hasn't been bad, has it? (laughs) She has to say that, maybe. Do you get what I'm saying? So that's why last Sunday, and I, man, I just wanted to break into a big prayer about it, but I kind of had to temper it because I, I just wanted to be sensitive to, to, to the dad that was there, you know, but I prayed. I said, this is one for the ages, you know. There's someone now who's like, in that family is a portal for God's presence. And that, man, that is exciting. So this week, um, look, it's been a tough year, um, for the leadership of the church and for me personally, for a whole bunch of reasons which I won't go into, but it's been a really tough year, it's been a really tough six months. And I got this phone call, got this message a couple of days ago from someone in the church and they said, Peter, I need to talk to you, there's something I need you to pray for. I'm just Now listen, the pessimist is just cranking up in me and I'm just going, yeah, okay, so some hell's kind of gone down somewhere and we've got to engage with this because it's been a little bit of that kind of, kind of pattern with a bunch of things that have been going on. Maybe not hell, but there's been a bunch of difficult things. Anyway, so I ring this fellow back up and uh, he goes, this is what he said to me, he goes, Peter, um, there's a couple that my wife and I have been spending time with and they are so close to becoming a Christian. Would you pray for them? And I said, no, no way, we don't pray for that stuff. (laughs) You see what's going on? There's a couple in our church, there's a family in our church out of the presence of God to people who might well come to faith. And they're calling me and saying, can you pray? Can you pray that God will bring about change in these people? It's exciting, right? Because yeah. you know, the wife has actually said that she wants to be on mission for God where she goes. Do you know what she's doing? She's taking the presence of God with her around the place. So on Thursday afternoon... I, um, we had to get a, it's a long story, but we had to get a new device so the church will run properly and anyway, so we're going to have a monitor up the front. Anyway, so the long and the short of it was I ended up at the Telstra shop at uh, Grand Central and uh, I, uh, I needed to test out this device and it turned out that they couldn't really let me test it the way I wanted, I wanted to and they said, oh, do you want to just make an appointment with a tech bar, right? I just kind of, that's cool, that sounds like a cool bar, a tech bar. Um, so we'll do that. Like, when can, when can we do that? And I said, come back at 4.30. And so I came back at 4.30 and I sat down and I had half an hour there because I wanted to give uh, this thing a good test drive. And uh, the, um, the fellow that came and helped me, his name was Josh. All right? And uh, I was just said to him, mate, I just need the network ID and the password and you probably don't even need to be here. And so for the first 15 minutes till about 4.45, um, he, um, he wasn't even there. And then... Because uh, I'd said to him, I said, uh, uh, mate, I'm, I'm a speaker and I just need to get this sorted um, so that I can, I can speak in places. 
And uh, he comes back at about 4.45 and he says to me, he goes, uh, what sort of speaking do you do? <laughs> just, just tee it up for me, brother. You just, that's what you're doing right there. Um, and I said, well, I'm actually, I uh, work in a church and uh, I speak about counselling and, and I speak about uh, all sorts of stuff to do with God. And, and he said to me, he said, uh, how do you go with that? He said, uh, he goes, I'm okay talking like one-on-one to people. He said, but I get really nervous when it comes to getting up in front of a group. And I said, well, you know something? I said, um, I get really nervous talking in front of groups. I said, it's been a weird thing in my life that Jesus has called me to do something that makes me nervous and, and gets me worried sometimes, a lot of times. I said, but you know what? I said, in doing that, Jesus has transformed my life. And he started talking about stuff. Now, I don't know. Like, is he just doing this to get a sale? I don't know. But I don't even care, all right? Because at the end of the day, I carry the presence of God with me and I want this guy to get saved. I want him to know that Jesus loves him and love Jesus and actually follow him. So we're just having this chat and we're talking about stuff. And then he starts talking to me about his dad. He goes, you know my dad, he got run over by a truck. Uh, Apparently he came around a corner or something in Townsville. Truck ran over the top of him. And uh, he said, uh, you know, my dad is a Christian now. He said, because there's no way that he could have lived without a miracle. And God came through for my dad. And uh, I said, just as we were leaving, like literally we were just starting to pack up, we'd, we talked for a bit. And at the end there, I just said to him, mate, I said, um, it must have been a hell of a time for you. You know, you get the call down in Toowoomba, I think it was, that your dad's just been run over by a truck in Townsville. And he's not expected to live. He goes, yeah, it was amazing. It was just intense, man. I said, and what, what was that like, just going up home? And, you know, that must have been terrible walking into the hospital, you know? And you know what he said? He goes, I, I said, how did you? I mean, he said that, yeah, he said it was really tough. He said it was intense. I said, how did you, how'd you, um, how'd you get through that? He goes, I couldn't do anything but just pray all the time, you know? I said, you know what? I said, what just happened in that moment for you is a reflection of how you've been made. You're not made to do stuff on your own. And you cried out to God in prayer because you're in a situation that you couldn't do on your own and you needed that connection. So I invited him to church. And he's not here this morning. And that's okay. But you could pray for Josh. Here's my last story. In 1857, in the old Dutch northern church on Fulton Street in Lower New York City, Jeremiah Lanfear, a lay missionary paid $1,000 a year to knock on doors, decided to have a prayer meeting. And he wasn't a pastor, he wasn't a leader in a church, he was a lay person in the church. So he put a sign out the front of uh, the church saying that there would be a prayer meeting. From tw- this is a true story, from 12 to 1 o'clock. And he sat there from 12 through till 12.30 and no one came until 12.30 and some people wandered in. There were six of them all up on the 23rd of September in 1857. The next week there was 20 The next week there was 40 and in a short period of time this prayer meeting had over 3,000 people attending it on a weekday at lunchtime. By six months 10,000 businessmen were gathering together daily to pray in New York City in the middle of the day. And you know this guy Jeremiah, Jeremiah for him it wasn't about strategy, it was about the fact that people needed prayer. And they spent all their time praying that people would be saved in these meetings. Listen to these stories. One time a man wandered into the Fulton Street meeting who intended to murder a woman and then commit suicide. He listened as someone was delivering a fervent exhortation and urging the duty of repentance. Suddenly, the would-be murderer startled everyone by crying out, Oh, what shall I do to be saved? Just then, another man arose. 
and with tears streaming down his cheeks, asked the meeting to sing the hymn, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me. At the conclusion of the service, both men were converted. Another time, an aged pastor got up to pray for, his, for the son of another clergyman. Unknown to him, his own son was sitting some distance behind him. The young man, knowing himself to be a sinner, was so impressed at hearing his father pray for another man's son that he made himself known to the meeting and said that he wanted to submit to God. He became a regular attender at the prayer meeting. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really passionate about this and that's why I'm trying. <laughs> Listen to this from a Chicago newspaper. So far as the effects of the present religious movement are concerned, they are apparent to all. They are to be seen in every walk of life, to be felt in every phase of society. The merchant, the farmer, the mechanic, all who have been within their influence have been incited to better things, to a more orderly and honest way of life. All have been more or less influenced by this excitement. You see, this thing just started happening where God's glory started being poured out and people returned to God. And people were talking about the way that God was transforming them and it was transforming culture. At the very first union prayer meeting held in Kalamazoo, Michigan, someone put in this request. A praying wife requests the prayers of this meeting for her unconverted husband, that he may be converted and made a humble disciple of the Lord Jesus. At once, a stout, burly man arose and said, I am that man. <laughs> I have a pious praying wife. And this request must be for me. I want you to pray for me. As soon as he sat down, another man got up and said, I'm that man. I have a praying wife. She prays for me and now she asked you to pray for me. I'm sure I am that man and I want you to pray for me too. Three or four or five or more arose and said, we want you to pray for us too. That started a revival that brought at least 500 conversions. See, estimates are that between 300,000 and a million people were saved across America as a result of this six-person prayer meeting. And the revival spread through means of changed lives. It wasn't spread through holy laughter. It wasn't spread through hysterical things. It wasn't spread through things that are unusual. And I'm not saying that God can't do that stuff. It was confidence in prayer that actually spread this work of God. Even more than preaching. I mean, Finney actually said of this revival that people valued prayer more than preaching because they said the preaching was actually leading to them being hardened instead of actually softening and going and seeking God's change in the world. You have the presence of God in you. And you don't need me or any leaders in this church to organise for you to go and use that. So don't sit there and think, I'm just going to wait until you start something, then I'll get on board with it. You have Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and if he calls you to do something, why don't you go and do it? Test it with a few Christians, test it against the word, and then go and do it. This revival that happened in the 1850s in America didn't come through the people in the church. It didn't come through people like me. It came through a guy who decided that God was calling him to do something and then it spread like wildfire and the glory of God was poured out. You see, there's things in this church that happen that we don't announce. And it's not because we don't value them, it's just that they're not official church activities. But we say to you, just go and do them. There's a Friday morning prayer meeting that happens because there's a bunch of people who want to pray. We don't have to know about that. Like if you, I mean, it's nice to know, and it's nice to know that we're being prayed for, but we don't have to know. Like You don't need to get permission from us to gather some people together and pray. Are you with me? You're not in trouble right now. I'm trying to inspire you a little bit. And you're kind of looking at me like, is he busting us? <laughs> people have started small groups. 
because they want to gather people together and they want to grow together and do discipleship. You don't need the church structures to support you to just do what God's asking you to do. There might be some times where you need to and you're welcome to come and talk to us if you want to bounce some ideas off us. But you have the presence of God inside of you. Take it out there. Is that, was that the last revival that's happened in human history? No way. Is it the last one that's going to happen? The last one that happened, is that the last one that's going to happen? Don't know. I'll tell you, if, if, if God doesn't come back in the next 200 years, uh, we don't bet, right? But if you're a betting man, you're going, no chance. It's, it's happening, right? Because that's what happens. That's just how it works. God pours out his glory and he breaks out through his temple, which is his church. So you know what I really want to encourage you to do? Is I, is I want you to just remember that you have the presence of God in you. And remember that church, there's a presence of God in the church that's unique. And so you should come to church or go to church. It doesn't have to be here. And just go and tell people how Jesus has transformed your life. Or just start there. Maybe even this week. Make an, make, have a coffee with someone and just say, can I just tell you for a minute what has just totally changed my life? Just tell them. This uh, Telstra guy, Josh, he goes, you know, he goes, one of the things that really bothers me about church is that church is really pushy sometimes. I said, yeah, I said, they can be. So they can be. I said, you know what I say to people out at the project? I, I tell them, I say, you know, um, telling someone else about Jesus is like a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So go and do that. Just go and tell another beggar where to get the good stuff. Don't you do that? Like when you find something, when you buy something, when you do something and you go, this is really good, what do you do? Well, you go and tell someone, say, I've just found the good stuff. So... Why don't you just do that this week? It's, it's really simple. And to be honest, it wasn't even that uncomfortable with Josh. I mean, it was, it was weird. It was like a 15-minute, and I bought the thing at the end, so he probably felt like he had a blessing out of it. I don't know. But it was a 15-minute conversation where I just got to tell him. I said, Jesus, a real problem for me. And, and I actually said to him, I said, mate, two dynamics in my life are, are opposed to one another. I said, the fear of what other people think of me and Jesus' call for me. And they crash into one another. I said, but you know, Jesus is changing me and he's changed my life massively. Just tell someone about that.